If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, our scripture reading will be from verse 1 through verse 14, but our focus of attention will be the first five verses of this chapter. Following the reading of scripture, we will sing together the Gloria Patri, uh, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision or a husband's will, a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory was of the only begotten uh, Son of God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. I am departing from our series on the Heidelberg Catechism to spend a few weeks in this passage of Scripture reflecting on the uh, advent of Christ and and some of what it means to think about um, his coming and what that impact that has on us. It hasn't been that many years since David Bonner took us through these early chapters of John, and uh, much of what I'm going to say today will overlap also with some of the things that Ryan has been teaching in Sunday school But in spite of any of the repetition, uh, it is my prayer that you will find uh, this edifying. As we look at the prologue of this chapter, in a sense it's all a prologue, but the first five verses in particular, it has a focus on the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's that that we want to focus on. Um, John's gospel was written to direct us in this passage in particular to the heavenly dignity and glory of the Son of God. And it's my hope that you will see that today. And there are uh, nine elements of glory, of the glory of Jesus that we see in these five verses. I got that number from, I'm pretty sure, A.W. Pink. But at any rate, nine uh, elements of glory, of the glory of Jesus Christ here for us to reflect on. Um, Before we dig into those, 
John gives us the reason, the, the purpose behind the writing of his gospel, which is, relates to this. Turn to John 20, verse 31. John 20, verse 31. The other gospels never gave us so much this kind of a purpose statement. Luke perhaps did. But I'm sure all the gospel writers have this same purpose, but it clarifies why did John give us this information? And in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing his gospel so that you might clearly understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the fulfillment of all the long prophecies of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, glorious in his dignity and his um, power and might, and that by believing, you would have eternal life in his name. So that's the purpose of the writing of this gospel. That's the purpose and goal, really, of what we're looking at in this first chapter. So come back to the uh, first chapter in John 1. John 1, 1 is a deliberate and specific parallel to the very beginning verse of the Bible. So here we have, in the beginning was the word. And you might remember, you probably remember, Genesis 1 begins... In the beginning, God. And so he's creating this exact parallel between those verses because he's communicating a point. He, we're underlying all the different points as the deity of Christ. But here he's, he's underscoring the fact that in the beginning it was God. And in the beginning it was the word. And the word is God. And he's going to say that very specifically. There's one of the... Uh, claims of the heretical teachers of the church over the years is that Jesus was a created being. He was the first of creation. He might be a glorious creation, but he was a created being. And uh, a denial of of his Godhead. He was God-like, but he was nevertheless not God. So one of the things John is underscoring when he parallels those two things is he's trying to underscore the first glorious truth is the eternity, the eternal nature of Christ. That before anything was created, before this world came into being, before God said his first announcement, let there be light, it was the presence of God. God was there. The eternal God was there. And that the clarity of the truth that Jesus was, is eternal God, comes out in that phrase. In the beginning was the word. He was there in the beginning before all things, before anything was made. He dwelt in unapproachable light with the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, it fits very consistently with something Jesus prayed in John 17, his high priestly prayer, He prayed to the Father, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began, Christ was there. God was there. 
the triune God was there. And so his, the glory of Jesus as the eternal is, comes out in that phrase, in the beginning uh, was the word. The second uh, glorious element that you see is that Jesus is the final and ultimate word of God. Uh, so you have that phrase, in the beginning was the word. So what is communicated to us in that title, in that label given, in the beginning was the word? It's uh, not written to be attractive to any philosophically minded people. It was to communicate a particular truth. And one of the things it was to communicate is that Jesus is the final and the ultimate message from God communicating the character of God and the work of God. I won't have you turn there, but a passage that picks this thought up is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Christ is the final spokesman of God. Many prophets beforehand, but Jesus gives the final word about who God is. He's the word. In uh, Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He's God's alphabet. He's the one who communicates all the truth about the character and glory of Almighty God. He's the final and complete word. He spells that out. Uh, You're still in John 1, hopefully, if you look at verse 18. It says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. Uh, He's the spokesman. He declares who God is and all that God has done. Uh, Just along this theme, too, J. Gresham Machen, reflecting this thought, he, he writes, what is the meaning of the word? The simplest answer is that the term merely designates Jesus as the revealer of God. The word of God is a common phrase referring to the divine message, which comes either through the scriptures or through the lips of a prophet or apostle. God has spoken through a person. The person was Jesus Christ. In this way, the simple Christian usually understands the first verse of John, that the Son is God's final word to men. In the beginning was the word. The third glorious element of Jesus' glory is the fact that he's a distinct person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And John's phrasing of that is very deliberate and very specific. Uh, It's that to show the distinction in the person of Christ within the triune nature of God. We hold fast to the Trinity. The church has always taught and understood the Trinity, that there is one God, but in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's some things about that when we're trying to explain it to our children and we, uh, it, it, it challenges our thinking process, but the Bible clearly reveals it. And here's a passage that helps us to appreciate and understand that, that God is 
one God, but there are distinctions, and the Word was with God. Perhaps we could think of it as God was, the Word was with God the Father, but He was with God the Holy Spirit. He's with them. There's a distinction made between them. Uh, there are some though, of those in the past history uh, in uh, different heretical uh, objections to this teaching. One was from the early church was called modalism. And what modalism taught was that uh, there's only one God, but he demonstrated himself in three different modes. <clears throat> not persons, they're not distinct. In three modes, he was at one one hand uh, would display himself as the father he would, or display himself as the son or display himself as the Holy Spirit. There are many, many problems with that. Uh, you would take up perhaps an illustration. A man might be, he's, of course, he's only one man. A man might be understood as a father, as a husband, as a brother. And so you have that idea, there's only one person and you just see him in his different roles. Again, there's lots of problems with that view, but let's just stay with this text. This text is completely showing that's false. There's a distinction in the persons of the Trinity. It's all one God. They're the same in substance and equal in power and glory, but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, are distinct persons within the one God. And we have that here, Jesus' glory as a distinct person of the Trinity, and the Word was with God. <clears throat> the fourth element of glory of the Son is his unity with God. And uh, we stay with the phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that preposition with communicates a couple different things. One is it communicates certainly the fellowship that the triune God has within themselves. We understand when we walk with someone, if we read the statement in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God, we understand that to say they had fellowship together. <clears throat> there was a relationship together. But this preposition with communicates something else as well. It's the Greek preposition pros, which come, <clears throat> can be translated toward, to, or unto. And so the picture you get when it says the word was with God <clears throat> is that the word was moving toward God. He was uh, in, in, in his direction and his purpose and his unity was in the direction of the triune God. So in other words, there's not a that while a distinction in persons, there's not a distinction in purpose. They're one in purpose. They're one in being, they're one in purpose. And, and this shows the glory of the Son is that he's inclined to the interests of God. He's unified in the interest of the Father. He's unified in the interest of the Spirit. There, there's a unity in God and the glory of Christ, the Son of God, is that he has a part in that unity <clears throat> with the person of God. And then we come to the last phrase of the verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is absolutely no confusion about what John is trying to communicate. 
even though there are people who oppose this, it's absolutely crystal clear. There's no, there is no misunderstanding. The word is God. It's underscoring the, so the fifth element of his glory is his deity, which of course is kind of woven in all of these. But uh, Jesus is God. It's his deity that's underscored in this thing, <clears throat> in this phrase. Uh, literally, if we were to take it according to the way the words are uh, originally, it's, and God was the word. It's making, it, it, there's, there's no confusion. There's no misunderstanding. He's affirming in no uncertain terms the deity of the word, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's been a great deal of attack on that particular phrase. There are those who oppose it. In the early church, it was Arius. <clears throat> the Council of Nicaea was called together to deal with his particular um, heresy. Again, he spoke of Jesus being a godlike creature, but he was not, uh, he was not truly God. Uh, in the contemporary world, the Jehovah's Witnesses pick up that thought. They deny uh, the divine nature of <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Now, they might say he was a god, but they wouldn't identify him with uh, the triune God. And the reason they say this <clears throat> is that the <clears throat> in, in, in the phrase... And the word was God. God does not have the definite article. <clears throat> and so they say, well, it, it's indefinite. So that means they're what, they're, what's, what John is saying is that the word was a God. <clears throat> he was a divine-like person, but he wasn't truly God. Well, how do, how do we deal, how do we answer that? How do, how do we deal with that claim that the Greek affirms the the fact that Jesus was not God. Well, there are several things that we can say about this. One is our conviction that Jesus is God is not based on this verse alone. It's clearly taught here. Uh, but the whole New Testament witnesses to the deity of Jesus Christ. And so we could go to other passages to affirm that. Uh, but we can stay here for the, this one for a minute. Another thing that we can say is if John had meant to say that Jesus was God-like, there was another perfectly good Greek word that he could have used that would have said that exact thing. Theos is a, a word that communicates a God-like person. But that's not what he used. He uses the word, the Greek word for God, theos. He's saying the word is theos, is God. Uh, the argument of the Jehovah's Witnesses trying to argue from Greek might be overwhelming to some, but the Greek grammar won't allow it. There's two reasons the Greek word, the Greek grammar won't allow uh, what they're trying to say. Uh, the one is... In, in the Greek language, you don't use the definite article to make a noun or a, a name definite. Like if I were to speak to you about a horse, well, your question would be, what horse? 
It's indefinite. So I have to rephrase it. No, the horse or that horse. I have to make with the, the, the article the definite. But in the Greek language, it's not that way. If you if you pick up a great grammar, you will find an entire chapter on the use of the article. Explaining all the different ways it's used. In the Greek language, a noun or a person's name is definite because of the context. Whether it has the article or whether it doesn't. And so when John is writing and the word was God, he is being absolutely definite that the word is deity. There's no possible confusion. There's another reason why John may not have used the article to say the word was the God. And it would have been that in this context, he's trying to show the deity of Christ and yet the distinction in the persons of the Trinity. So he's trying to keep both of those things before our minds. And so he leaves out the article at this point so he can say that the word is God. But there's no confusion. There's no possible way to misunderstand what he's saying. He's underscoring in no uncertain terms the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth element of glory of this, the son here is that Jesus is the creator. You see this in verse three, through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. You and I tend to think the father elects and creates, the son redeems, the spirit applies it. And the Bible does communicate that those different roles that the the members of the Trinity have in the work of redemption. Peter in his first letter says, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. So that's not an improper way of thinking. But here John is underscoring the glory of Christ and saying he also is the creator. And when you look at Genesis, you see the the Trinity involved in the creation of the world. Even if you want even if you want to say in the beginning God created, if that's the Father, how does he create? He creates through the word. He speaks the word and the word is part of creation and where is the Holy Spirit? He's the <clears throat> spirit hovering over the waters. So the triune God is involved in creation. Jesus is the creator and that's part of his glory. The seventh element is his, that he's the source of life. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the source of physical life, obviously, as the creator, but he's ultimately the, the, the source of our spiritual life. Um, John, in his first letter, will say, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Jesus Christ is the source of our eternal life which is part of his glory. The eighth element is that Jesus is the light of the world. Again, verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of men. Here you have 
more directly pointing to the regenerating work of the of God through the Holy Spirit, through Christ's work. He's the light of men. There's more that John will write about uh, that in, in this, even in this section. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the ninth element of glory is that uh, Jesus is victorious. We have this in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Jesus Christ is the light coming into the world, and he's in a world of darkness and, and sin in men's lives. But that light will not be received readily. The darkness will seek to oppose it. Uh, Turn to John 3, verse 19. John 3, verse 19. Where Jesus says, this is the verdict. John 3, 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And we see this opposition, this hatred in the birth narratives themselves and the hatred of Herod and his pursuit of the Savior in Bethlehem and his murder of all the innocents in the area of Bethlehem. But what this verse is telling us in verse 5 is the light that shines in darkness will be victorious. Now, the NIV has it, and the darkness has not understood it. And that's a common translation, so I'm not going to say it's inappropriate. But you might have in your NIV footnote or in another translation that the translation is, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word exactly means to throw against something. And so what we're seeing in this verse is the light has come into the world and into the darkness of this world and the darkness doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it will throw everything against the light that it possibly can. But the light will win. The light will overcome. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. The light is going to go into the world and will be victorious. And as we live in a dark world as well, like as they did in that day, we might say, what hope is there for the gospel? the, The hope is in Christ, the glory of Christ, because the light will be victorious. Not in everyone, but it will win the day. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. He's God, the Son, manifest in the flesh. And he reveals God in such a complete way that in the upper room he could say to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The calling for you and for me is that we we enter into the knowledge of this Savior and that we grow in Him. 
You all are very busy with preparations for a holiday season and all the different events that will be a part of it. And all of that is appropriate in its place. But make it your goal as part of your preparations, as part of your um, readying your heart, that you will make it your ambition to meditate upon the excellencies of your Savior. Paul writes, God who said, let, shli- let light shine out of darkness, made, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. May you and I grow in that knowledge. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the richness of your word and its truth. <clears throat> we pray, O oh Father, that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of your Son, and appreciate the glory revealed in and through him, and that we might love him and love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with all of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.